Looking at Ephesians 2, um, I would like to begin with verse 13 for context and read through verse 17, but we'll look at verse 16 this evening. Hear the word of the Lord. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Since the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you've given us your word as our heritage for us and for our children. We thank you for it and we pray that we would understand it aright this evening and do justice to the great truths here. We pray for your aid and uh, help to that end through your Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned, we are working on verse 16. Uh, you can even see, if you're reading the uh, same translation, I think it's quite clear, um, that verse 16 is a continuation of verse 15, uh, and it goes like this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might. And you can see that word might there, this is a a purpose that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might. So you get this purpose is twofold. Uh, one, that he might create in himself one new human race. Uh, and we saw last time, it's one new human race who are united in peace with no more dividing wall between Jew and Gentile or anybody else uh, on this earth. There's no distinction between anyone in uh, coming to the Lord. This is why James 2, for example, you get pretty strong statements about showing favoritism to anyone for any reason uh, God condemns. He himself does not show favoritism and he won't allow us to as well. So here, this is the basis of it. He's created us as one new human race, united us together in peace with no distinction anymore dividing. And I talked last time about how in the law, you have these separation commandments, these regulations that kept Israel separate from the nations around her. And those have been annulled by Christ. He has he has done away with those. He's thrown down the dividing wall, verse 14. Well, here you have the second part of this purpose, that he might create in himself one new man, and the second one here in verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God. Now, earlier we had this, previously, we had this reconciliation between two warring groups, Israel and the nations. Uh, that was what had been taking place up to this point, the dividing wall between 
Jews and Gentiles has been thrown down so that we together might dwell in peace in one new human race. So it's really between humans uh, that you have this peace being uh, accomplished in Christ. But here in verse 16, uh, that's, that's good and nice, <laughs> but it's that we together might be presented to God and have reconciliation with him. That's now a Godward reconciliation that Christ also accomplished. So he accomplished two things. So it's that he might do two things, uh, that he might create in himself one new human race unified and then present this unified human race that he's created through his cross, through his sacrifice, present this unified people to God to be reconciled with him. And that's what God was doing uh, in Christ on the cross. So that's what Paul is focusing on now, this Godward reconciliation and peace that we have. Uh, now, you see in the context uh, this business of near and far. This is actually language picked up from Isaiah uh, that talks about this. We're, we're going to see this uh, next time, next week, I think, verse 17 in particular. Uh, we're going to be referencing that Isaiah passage. But here, the people who are near are Israel, and the people who are far off are the uncircumcised Gentiles. They were unclean. They were people to be separated from Israel by these regulations. Uh, but in all this, you can note the, the uh, effect of the covenant. Uh, covenant creates a bond between God and his people so that his people are unified, that they might be unified with God, be at peace with him. Uh, he is their God, and they are his people, he, the prized possession of God. And, and so these people who were far off were separated from the covenants of promise. That's why they were far off. They were far off because they were outside of God's redemption in, uh, in terms of covenant. Now, you see that every Lord's Day with the Lord's Supper. The blood of the covenant of Christ is offered to his people, not to, you know, strangers outside. We don't take the Lord's Supper downtown and just offer it in, to pedestrians in passing. Uh, it, you know, it, it, would have, it would be the opposite of good for them. It would bring condemnation to those who partook unworthily. Uh, it's not for them. It's not a covenant privilege that they have because it expresses that bond we have with God in Christ. So this is, a, this is ours that God has given to us. Well, bef before we were united with Christ, we had no access to any of the sacraments of the Old Testament, particularly the sacrifices. They were not ours. We had no access to those things, and therefore we had no access to God, as we will see in a moment. So we were strangers from the covenants of promise. We were far off. We were not citizens of this covenantal body, you know, citizens of Israel. Uh, Paul uses that terminology in the previous. But now, you see, he has brought those people who were far off, and he's brought them into fellowship with himself in covenant. And that is, of course, is the new covenant. This is why the new covenant 
is uh, so overtly centered on Christ. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to uh, James earlier and, you know, noting that the new covenant is not made with us individually as with Abraham. So he doesn't, you know, when you profess Christ and join the church for the first time, the Lord doesn't appear to you and take you outside and say, take some animals, cut them in two, and, you know, Genesis 15, and then you fall into a deep sleep and a smoking pot walks between them, and then this covenant is sealed. So you don't have that experience. You could, I mean, God could do that, but it would then disconnect his covenant from Christ. So the covenant is made with the Son of God and the elect in him. He's the mediator of this covenant. So the covenant is uh, quite clearly made with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's the covenant we're a part of, and then historically that works out to be a covenant that we call the new covenant, that he is constituted by his blood. If you want to see this, let me direct your attention very briefly. Uh, This is a very important passage. Uh, This is uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And I won't, you know, do much with this, but this is a really important passage to that effect. And, you know, notice how the author is arguing this point very closely and very directly because this is the foundation of the Christian faith. And to miss this is really to miss the uh, particular uh, benefits of the Christian faith. So I'm looking at Hebrews 9, 14 and following. So he's been comparing uh, the blood of bulls and goats uh, under the Mosaic Covenant, and now verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So so he's arguing that Christ's death constitutes him the mediator of a new covenant. That's where the new covenant is constituted. You won't have this dream experience in 2024 because that covenant has already been sealed by blood. And it's the blood of Christ on the cross. That's where the new covenant was constituted. And from that point on, the new covenant is an eternal covenant which won't change forever. That's what we're a part of. And we're integrated into that. It's administered to us so that we now have the benefits of that. You can see that in this text. We might receive the eternal inheritance based on his blood sacrifice on the cross. So that's where the new covenant was constituted. That's where it was inaugurated, not at some later time. Uh, It's founded actually in uh, the divine council, but that's where historically it was 
uh, sealed. So we're part of that. And in that, we have these great benefits. Now, you see the uh, kind of the ripple effect echoing out from the cross in verse 16 of Ephesians 2. Uh, here, we have this reconciliation. So you see, the, the covenant brings us together with God. He, he claims to us, I am your God, and you are my treasured possession, a term we found in Ephesians 1. You are my treasured possession. You are, you are my people. Uh, I, I have you as mine, but you have me as yours. See, this is, this is why whenever you see the term, uh, the Lord your God, that's a covenant bond underlying that. He, he's your God. He has given himself to you. Then he sealed that gift uh, by uh, a bond of a sworn oath. And it's like having a marriage ring, which is a seal uh, of that marriage bond. God has given you a seal of the marriage bond, baptism, the Lord's Supper in the new covenant. So this is, this is uh, that going on. And then he reconciles us to himself through the cross. Now, you see, we were at one point not citizens of this covenantal promise that God would be our God and we would be at peace with him. Uh, but we were, verse 12, without God in the world, alienated from the citizenship of Israel. And I want you to think about this. How is it that people who don't have God as their God can be reconciled to him? if his anger is inflamed against them because of their sin. Go back to the first part of chapter 2 of Ephesians. You were by nature children of wrath in your sin and transgression that you walked in. You were allied as your God with the prince of the power of the air. This is, this is who you were a part of. If you're separated from God, that's your heritage and that's where you that's the realm you live in and that's your covenant lord is satan and you were without god in the world so what are you going to do about that let's say you you say to yourself i've got to fix this i've let's say you live before the time of christ and you say i've, I've got to fix that so you buy some armor and you take a goat and you go to the temple and you say, hopefully they won't kill me before I make it into the Holy of Holies. Because I've got to offer this goat for my sins to be reconciled with God so that his anger will turn from me. And I will go in there and I will accomplish a sacrifice that he will accept to avert his wrath from me, to turn away his wrath from my sin. Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, 
And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. You do not go into the presence of the Lord on your own terms, offering the offering you want to bring, hoping that God will accept it. If he didn't command it, you cannot offer it. Or this is what happens. Fire comes out and consumes them. The wrath of God was kindled against them. So what hope would you have as a Gentile? What hope, what can you do? And the answer is nothing. God does it. You have to accept his terms. And here's what he's done. He's reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And the hostility was God's hostility toward us in his wrath. His, his hot anger against our sin. Remember, this is, this is chapter, you know, it's been a long time, but verse 16 flows right out of what he's been doing earlier in chapter 2. By nature, children of wrath, you were in your sins and transgressions uh, that you lived in. You walked in them. You were dead in your trespasses. You, you were hopeless. Uh, there is no forgiveness. Verse chapter uh, 1, verse 7, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See, forgiveness of trespasses comes through the blood of Christ, this redemption. He purchased us out of God's wrath, and then he reconciled us to himself. So there's no more hostility. God is not angry with you anymore. God's wrath is not inflamed against you. His fatherly displeasure, our confession talks about, might fall upon us if we dwell in sin and uh, do, are neglectful of our duty to uh, worship and serve him and to grow in the love of God and fall into sin, and cherish it, and live for a season in that sin, even as his people. This is, this is in our confession, it's very clear. His father, fatherly displeasure may fall upon us for training us. And if he doesn't train us, we're not his children. See, this is, this is Hebrews 12. If, if you don't feel the chastisement of the Lord while dwelling in sin, then you're not his. So repent. That's the only thing you can do. Uh, so we don't, we don't cherish this sin. We don't live in it. We turn. We repent. And the easiest way to do that is you come to the church. You, you come and you confess your sin, uh, even confessing to one another, and you turn from it. But that's different from wrath. That's, fatherly displeasure is not God's anger. He's not hostile to you anymore. You are his beloved possession and a child that he cherishes and trains uh, in, his, uh, in his love and kindness. Because you're a part of a new creation. And this is irrevocable. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciled the reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, this is the, the gospel in a nutshell. But notice the role of the apostle here. He's an ambassador so that God, through him, is making an appeal to these people to be reconciled and to accept the reconciliation and live according to that reconciliation uh, that God has commanded. We're going to come back to this next week. Uh, and we're going to, I'm going to remind you of this text because it will be quite important to understand that God's provision for you uh, in the ministry of the church. Now, secondly, the enmity here, Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The reconciliation of God was accomplished by the blood of Christ. This is what Paul says in a Ephesians 2, on the cross. This is where the great reconciliation takes place. And I want you to notice that term reconciliation. He reconciled us. Now, the normal, the normal uh, use of that phrase is he caused us to drop our animosity to him so that he reconciled us to himself by persuading us to drop our animosity. That's actually how this term is normally used when you say you reconcile somebody to yourself, is I make you drop your animosity to him. But this is actually turned on its head. God drops his own animosity toward us in Christ Jesus so that we are now reconciled to him because his animosity has been turned aside by his son. So this is the marvel of the gospel. So you, we people who were without God in the world, we're not going to go in the Holy of Holies. We're going to stand around helpless and say, woe is me, where is my helper? Who is going to have mercy upon me, this great God that I don't know? In Christ Jesus, the great God reached down. This is Acts 17, you know those people who didn't know God. God, now the Lord announces to you that that God has appointed a man uh, who is the savior of the whole world. And that's what we have here. One final thought, in, and I'll conclude soon here. One final thought here is verse 16 again, Ephesians 2.16 that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's, it's a pretty important um, reflection that I suggest to you. 
that Paul has this favorite term for the church, that we are the body of Christ. You know, Christ is the head and we are the body. He uses that in various ways. He talks about not everybody is an, uh, a foot, some people are hands, you're different parts of the body, all working together as one body. So the church is one body in that sense. That's Corinthians. But here, we are in one body reconciled to God. Uh, and, and that's what he says. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now, this is going to extend forward to Ephesians 4, where Paul says, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, and because of that, the body of Christ is more than just a metaphor in a, a sense. It's a metaphor, but I want you to consider this. Christ, who after, once he's incarnate, that's an eternal incarnation. He continues forever to be a human being. The Son of God has taken up into himself human nature and it's permanent. What happened at his death, he remained human with a human soul. And then his body was united with that soul in resurrection that's still human because it's the resurrection that you and I will experience because he experienced it. And then he was ascended to heaven as the God-man who's still man. He's still a human being at the right hand of the Father. We have one of us at the right hand of the Father. That's, that's the key thing here. It's a permanent status. So he is in heaven. His body is in heaven. He, he is not here on earth bodily. However, we are that body. We're the physical presence of Christ through the Spirit. There's one body and one spirit. So the spirit makes us the presence of Christ here in a sense. Now, Christ is present through the spirit. He doesn't need us. I'm not, I'm not saying anything mystical or union of being or anything. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting to you this metaphor shows we have an important mission in this world. We're the presence of Christ in this world. The church is not an optional institution. Christ has appointed us to be in the world as his people representing him. We are his ambassadors. We are the presence of Christ in the world, showing the love of God to people. And this is why we are here. We have this, this vocation together. It's not any one of you individually. It's us together fulfilling our different roles in the church. You don't have to do the same thing I do, and I don't have to do the same thing you do. That's the important understanding. This is also Corinthians. You have a role in that, but you're part of this working in the body, whatever your calling is. This is a vital thing in the world, because without us, and, and I, would, I would direct your attention to Matthew 5. You are the salt of the, of the earth. And if the salt loses its salty, it's not good for anything. You are the light of the world. 
Interesting, because Jesus says he's the light of the world. Well, he is, but we're the light of the world. See, he's made us to reflect him in the world. So this whole business of the body is quite interesting. And I think it shows you the dignity and the importance of you in your functioning in the church and how the church works together to represent Christ in this world so that we as one body may uh, be here as a testimony to Christ. This is why we have this union with Christ. We all together are unified with him. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We are united. We participate in union through the Spirit with Christ our Lord in heaven so that we have now encouragement and strength to carry on the calling that we have. But we know that we do such where there's no more hostility and we reconcile others to God in the gospel. This is, our, this is the text uh, this evening. Let us pray. We have a very high calling, O oh Lord, and a very great task before us that we, we don't think we can live up to it. We all fail in many ways. But that being true, O oh Lord, we have faith in you and pray that you will make us to be the light of the world, and as the body of Christ may be agents of reconciliation for those who don't know you like ourselves at one point. At one point. We pray that you'll be merciful to us and to our neighbors. Through the grace of Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen.